the origin story thing got me thinking a lot about how we keep doing that too is like how did we get shaped like what were what you know i have what how old am i i feel so old Let's see 36 like 36 years of sexual experience now under my belt more years than you've been alive why would you only say 36 though i mean do you need to be having sex to have like why 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 only 36 yeah Oh, I'm counting from my first serious relationship. I mean, okay, so now we're getting into stuff we might be recording. We might should be recording. Okay, let's go for it. Need a okay. countdown? <laughs> no, because you just said that and I got butterflies again. Okay, we're a few episodes in. Uh, I feel like we've we've done a good job of establishing what the pleasure ethic is and sort of some of the theoretical and philosophical foundations. And today, you and I are going to get into some of the more grittier topics and we're going to dive in and have a conversation about sex, see where it takes us. And so, welcome back to the pleasure ethic. I'm Elena Letourneau, and this is my co-host, Javier Cortez. Hello, everybody. Yeah, this is a interesting episode. It's funny because we, you and I, in conversation outside of podcasting, sex is always one of the two or three topics that we hit on, probably the most common of all topics, but now we're, we're bringing it into a more public place to do that conversation, so... Uh, there's, I think, butterflies on, on both sides. And I think mm-hmm. for the most part, through four episodes, we've kept a a pretty PG version or a PG, I don't, not even say PG, but just I think the way that we've talked about certain things in comparison to what we're going to talk about today, sex is just so much more taboo, even though we don't consider it something that is taboo. But when you bring that into a public space, it, it, it becomes that it gets colored with that. So and vulnerable. um, Yeah. And, and vulnerable. Um, so very interested to see where this episode goes. Um, can I bring up something that we were chit chatting about just right before we, we, got into yes, this episode but i want to say something first okay go just for real it. quick and then yes i want you to okay. bring that up um but as i was hearing you sort of intro this also one of the thoughts i had is that i think it can be really valuable to have a vulnerable raw conversation about these things because one of the things i want to do and i do a lot of times is normalize this you know normalize it that you know i find a lot of people feel like there's a manual about sex and that they missed out on, but that most people feel that way. So we're all missing the manual. Um, Yeah. And I want to, I want to get real with you in this conversation with, you know, one of my, one of the reasons is to normalize things for people. I don't know if we'll be able to do that, but that is my hope and goal. Yeah. And I think over the course of this podcast, the broad, subject of sex will ultimately that's what we're probably going to talk about the most at the end of the day as we get 
into more niche aspects of it because so far yeah. we've been just kind of broadly pinpointing these subjects that again like you said we want to lay the foundation with so this yeah. is going to be the first of of many episodes sex on sex and relationships yeah yes yeah sex and relationships of course and of course w within that though it's it, so it's it's going to be the the broadest, but as we go on, it will become a little bit more niche and specific to something in relation to, I don't know, because the yeah. it's endless when we talk about sex, at least from our perspective. Um, there's so many ways we can go with it. Let's get into it, though. You gave me a number in terms of <laughs> years you've been like on the the sexually active roster or I don't even know how to describe it. You said yeah. uh, the number 30, 36 six. years of sexual experience. And I responded with why only 36 years? Um, and I guess more to kind of open it up to a philosophical discussion about when do we, when does that first kind of, when can we count that first year? Is it the first year within a serious relationship? Is it the year that we lose our virginity? When does that actually happen? When do we become sexual or sexually aware of things? What what made you want to give that number? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think that that answer is going to be individual. You know, mm -hmm. each person's going to answer that the way they're going to answer it. Um, I definitely explore that question when I work with people. I gave that number because I was thinking about, um, I mean, honestly, it's like when my relationships that were romantic and sexual really started when I was 17, I had sexual intercourse for the first time when I was 15, which was not a bad or violating experience, but it was a lousy one. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't do it again for two years. <laughs> Uh, he so was 15, just, I was 15. We didn't right. know what we were doing. It's it a test run. doesn't count. It was a test run. Yeah. <laughs> and it very, very much fit my personality because I was 15 and I didn't want to be a virgin anymore. So I achieved not being a virgin. Mm -hmm. But it was two years later that I met the first person that I really, I had a serious relationship with. And um, I was thinking about this topic today and just the the diversity of relationships I've had, the kinds of sex I've had. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of where it starts for me with my first boyfriend. So I was 17 and I had my first significant relationship was with, was a straight relationship with a straight cis man. And my second serious relationship was with a woman when I was 21. And so that kind of also like sets the tone for, my back and forth between straight and queer in my life, which is a pattern and a theme. Really quick though. So when, when you're in practice and you have similar discussions about how many years in this game of sex that we all have, not that you, I'm not saying you always ask that, but what's the kind of response that you get to people kind of do they start that number off from the first time they've had sex or do they kind of go more your route or what's the what do you kind of find is the answer or where does it lie well my approach is always to sort of get a story 
you mm-hmm. know, and start to get a sense of what it is that, again, how people were shaped, like what their early experiences were, what that impressed upon them about what sex means, whether it's for them or not for them, whether they were shamed for it or whether it was really positive. And there are as many stories as there are people. And a lot of times the first thing that I inquire about and try to elicit is just stories about like, when did you first become aware of the fact that sex was a thing? You know, what was your, what were your first experiences and impressions? And sometimes that's, you know, uh, masturbation, porn, movies. Yeah. I think most times it's related to, well, these days, porn. <laughs> yeah. These days, porn is a lot of times people's first exposure. Um, and then also masturbating, like discovering the pleasure of your body and then what that was like. I mean, to turn it around on myself, like if I had to think about when does that number start for me at mm-hmm. what age? And it starts mm-hmm. with masturbation and pornography. Certainly not because I, I view pornography as a a great resource to understand sex and sexuality. Generally speaking, I I think it's actually the opposite in most cases, but, and we, you and I have had this conversation. Some of the, the adult material that I was not shown, but just stumbled upon was to a degree informative. Um, And still to this day kind of goes about informing my knowledge of sex and my sex Mm -hmm. life to a degree. So I didn't lose my virginity till I was 17. I didn't become sexually active till about 15, but I would say that I, that number starts for me around 11, 12 um, around the time that I was first exposed to those things, even though it was nearly a decade, it was about yeah. a half decade until I lost my virginity. You know, it's interesting. Cause I mean, at hearing you speak, I think about myself at younger times, you know, I think the first time I remember having an orgasm solo, I was 12, I was exposed to sex way earlier and I have a really, really like my first memory is stumbling upon the joy of of sex, which is a really old book when I was like six. So it was definitely on the periphery. But when I, when I was thinking, when I said 36 years, I was thinking back to the beginning of my like relational experience, which is interesting. I had never really thought about it that way, but that was where, cause I was, I was thinking about where does my applied experience begin i don't know it, there there's there's a marker there for me at 17 sure so the i, I just looked it up i was curious so the joy of sex mm. uh, a 1972 illustrated sex manual by british author alex comfort i'll have to check that yeah, out very 70s what i remember is line drawings and a very significant bush on the woman line trying <laughs> that's mostly and being in a back room at a friend's parents house and both of us found it and we knew i mean that's another interesting thing this this comes across in the majority of stories we somehow knew even then it was secret you know mm. we were quiet we were sneaking 
we knew it was secret. No, I think everybody has stories about their their parents or their their aunt and uncle's playboys or or their, oh, their Playboy. porn stash oh, and all I that have such stuff. A you know, special place in my heart for Playboy. <laughs> yeah, no, and just uh, I, I mean, I think for younger people now, obviously, Playboy is a pretty antiquated. Uh, yeah, and source. back then it was you know it pissed off the feminists and it was not, you know, it was pornography. It, yeah. It was considered pornography in a very negative, you know, and viewed through a negative lens. Uh, pornography still to this day. I mean, I, I don't know what they're doing now, but I don't know what it was. It was another secret thing. Like we had playboy. And then if it was like what got dirty and felt more shameful and weird was like the more hardcore, like hustler and penthouse. Mm hmm. But I loved looking at the pretty boobs and women in the Playboys, like, and secretly want wishing that, you know, wanting to grow up and be one. Yeah. A part of, I, you know. I it mean, was, it's. I never fantasized about getting married, but I did fantasize about becoming a Playboy model, which is I mean, hilarious to me. Whether it's a Playboy magazine or it's a men's fitness magazine or it's a Vogue, it's like the, those people on, on the screens, on the covers, they are the ideal that I think so many, so many people want to become or, you know, fantasize about. So you know, it's not surprising. Yeah. And I mean, I think. Playboy certainly had like its apex and right before like the proliferation of like pornography on VHS, you know, mm, mm -hmm. so yeah. what was that? Like seventies, that was like peak Playboy time. Yeah. So I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but not to have a Playboy, you know, oral history, uh, cause that's not, what <laughs> I, or also <laughs> I don't want to get like, you know, hearing you too is like, there's, again, every moment, every topic we touch on, we could go off in so many yeah. directions. And I do want to acknowledge that pornography in a culture that is also as sexist and misogynistic as ours is, has definitely problematic pockets and problematic histories. But I want to stay focused on you know, sort of the pleasure ethic that this isn't about a, a huge social critique or the history of, yeah. but you know, what shapes us, right? Again, as sort of, you know, the lens of curiosity and compassionate observation so that we can start to look at what it was that we got or didn't get as we came up around sexuality to understand ourselves good, not, not to judge it as bad or good, right? but to explore and to understand. And we'll eventually have a, a porn specific episode where I think we oh, untangle yes, we some of those weaves, but yeah, uh, I got a lot to say about porn. <laughs> yeah. And, and also kind of like the societal framework of what it means to consume those things or to even, yes. And hearing you say, you know, we're in a, a, misogynistic sexist society uh queer phobic society but even to a degree in in some pockets and it's certainly changing like a sex phobic society absolutely and, and, a pleasure averse yes sex negative society 100 percent. yes and and i think that gets us to a good 
maybe not a thesis point for the for this episode, but a really good kind of launch point to a more specific conversation within this conversation. And it's what is the point of sex? Because I think the people who drive these sex phobic wheels down the road have a very narrowed <laughs> point of view of what sex is. And it's simply just to procreate between yes. a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, even more specifically than that. And obviously, most people throughout societal history um, simply don't just view sex as procreating with a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. It's a well, they do. They, I mean, historically, they, you know, a lot of people have, and they'll mold to that model. But that's not how. That's not behavior. Behavior doesn't line up. Does yeah, that make well, sense? Th- well, the behavior with the with the idealistic virtue of of what sex is certainly they contradict each other because people right. have been having sex out of wedlock and with and in all, all different types of, ways. of people and all different yeah. kinds of way. So absolutely the behavior and that's really kind of the the tug and pull of all this too is is just that because we all have I think this idealized version of what we want sex to be for us. And then we have our actual history that usually contradicts it. I have an ideal of what I want my sex life to be. And then I have a laundry list of like regrettable sexual experiences to go along with it. Well, I think it's interesting because I don't think everybody knows. Sure. I I don't even know. That's a lie, actually. I still don't fucking know. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because it's a conversation that we're not encouraged to have in a Mm -hmm. non-judgmental, open, sort of welcoming way we're struggling with all of these contradictory messages. You know, I talk about this, like, you know, on the one hand we have the sex negative culture that teaches that, that creates this stew of shame and silence around the vulnerability and the reality of sex. And then on the other hand, we have it like completely commodified sex sells and we have porn and we have, it's in our music, our advertisements in everything. Mm -hmm. So that's a real mind fuck. But getting back to the point, what's the point? Um, two things. One is, this is an opening question I have for this exploration in my work with a lot of people. Is like, you know, and sometimes when I'm working with people, I frame it as the, you know, why bother? Why have sex? Why do you have sex? What do you, why do you go to it? What do you get out of it? Um, but a few months ago, I went on a little mini survey of my friends, people I'd met on dating apps and my clients. And I asked, what is the point of sex? And the overlapping majority answers to the questions were, um, a few people said pleasure, which made me very happy. Um, connection, love, desire. Oh, I should have brought my notes out. Let's see. Acceptance. I mean, there were a lot of really interesting answers and then some ones that really threw me for a loop. Like one guy that I was talking to on a dating app actually said, it's a good workout. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. I mean, sure. But again, like the question is, you know, what is the point for you? And let's, let's get into that. So what do you, what do you know about it currently? (laughs) What do I know about sex? No, um, no, that, no, that's the way I took it. I'm like, uh, um, so no, what well, do you know about what sex is for you? 
in the ideal for me, and sometimes that ideal plays out in my actual sex life, it, it, it's certainly for connection and pleasure uh, with my girlfriend of four years. Historically, it hasn't always been that, though. It's It's been I've used sex kind of like somebody would use a substance, you know, and use substances to numb or to dissociate or to get high or all these various things that we might drink or do drugs for. Um, sex has certainly been that for me. I think it's also been, I think for a large portion of my early sex life in my early twenties was a tool for validation. Mm. Um, but then there's some parts of it that were always kind of confusing and unknown. And maybe you could chalk that up to just very rudimentary primal behavior of just chasing after somebody and then just wanting to catch them. But then what comes after catching them isn't really the part that you really enjoyed in the first place. I've had that be it as well. Mm -hmm. But there's um, something about the pursuit that yeah. is arousing, exciting, erotic. Yeah. And regardless yeah. of how that interaction goes, in my experience, there's always a letdown. It, always? It, it, really? If I'm approaching sex like that, yes. I've mm. never I've never come to enjoy um what the interaction entailed, even if it was enjoyable after the fact. If if that's how I'm approaching somebody. Um uh. it it just didn't it never really brought me anything other than a lot of negative feelings about myself and my actions after the fact after the fact yes um but i think there was always a part of that you know when you're if you're chasing after people for me i'm still speaking for me that knew like eh, you probably shouldn't do this because again it feel it felt like i was out of control like i was like again i was to I guess not to sound crass, but I I think it's a good expression like leading with my dick and not like mm. my head, and maybe that's where I, I I use the word maybe primal more because it feels more like a it's bodily experience and not a mindful experience of yeah. like your actions and choices if that makes sense. Yeah, and what I'm hearing in that is shame. Yeah, I'm, he I'm hearing an undercurrent of shame about, you know, possibly about what's the right way to approach and pursue sex and what's the wrong way. Mm -hmm. When you were following your dick after there was, a, it sounds like there were shame spirals. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anytime I was in that frame of mind, the the sexual... Conduct can't be isolated. You know, usually when I was in that frame of mind, I was also drinking heavily. You know, I wasn't sober at those times and I wasn't in a good place emotionally, mentally speaking. So it's not purely just wanting to go and have sex with somebody that brought on all the shame, but it was everything else that imbued the situation being my drinking, being the state mm -hmm. of my mental health. That certainly could make me not enjoy a nice evening of sex with somebody, you know? 
Because again, it it could be a nice interaction. The sex is nice. The interaction is nice. But then after the fact, it's, you know, a lot of negative, shameful feelings. So that's maybe not so much to do with the sex. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I hear, well, there's a couple of things in that, that I relate to, um, personally one, well, let me just speak to the shame part first. So I think because shame infuses our experience of sex so much, it's hard to parse out kind of what's actually okay and pleasurable and what's not, or we Mm. question or we judge you know, was that okay? Oh shit. I was out of control. That's not okay. Um, and it makes me think of, um, you know, my history of masturbating to porn because in the beginning, whenever I would masturbate to porn, I would, you know, I mean, it's sexual material. It's gonna, it's, it is by its nature sexually arousing. And so, it's been something that, you know, it's been like a sexual aid and it's, you know, makes me come quicker. And, but for a long time, every time post orgasm, I would feel so gross and I would have, yeah, I would feel shame and it would just be that up and down that cycle. You know, I'm horny. I watch porn. I get turned on. I have an orgasm. I feel like shit. I'm a bad person. That was gross you know, and that's the way it went until now. Um, well, first of all, I have to tell a little masturbation anecdote about Dr. Ruth because I was masturbating for about three years. And, and this was, I didn't even watch porn from 12 to 15, but still had that cycle. I would have an orgasm and I would feel, and I wasn't sure if it was okay. And one night late at night uh, on the late show was Dr. Ruth. I was watching it with my mom, weirdly enough. I was 15 and someone called into the show saying that she'd caught her 15 year old son masturbating. And Dr. Ruth said, Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And I sat there in my little 15 year old body. and I was like, Oh my God, it's wonderful. Like she gave me permission in that moment. I finally had someone tell me that seemed trustworthy that what I was doing was okay. And it was so relieving. Later adding porn, you know, got to the same cycle, but then, but now as someone who, you know, this is my field of expertise and I've done my own work around this, like, I, I know that porn is a sexual aid. Like if I want to get off quicker, I use some porn and it's, it's helpful when I have, want to have an orgasm and I don't have shame about it anymore uh, because I understand more about how all of this works. And I've worked really hard not, you know, to de-shameify and remove the self-judgment from it. Um, the other thing that what you were saying made me think of is, you know, I was thinking a lot leading up to this episode and I was remembering how horny I would get in my adolescence and twenties. Like, like it would just take over my brain. It was torturous and it was, it was all consuming and it was so hard. And I did, I sought out sex for sensation and to get high and to get validated. Like it was amazing. It was this amazing, powerful thing that sometimes I definitely didn't feel 
like I had control over, which I think now, you know, I think now that's a very normal thing. And I would like to normalize that and understand that, that, that horniness is a good thing and following your pussy or following your dick isn't, isn't inherently wrong, you know? And I think that we are taught that it is mind over matter. Don't trust those bodily urges and hungers. Definitely don't trust lust. No, I, I think with with what you, you said on, on both fronts, I think you spoke for millions of people's experience, especially with masturbation. And I think what is lost in, or what's really insidious about this mind over matter teaching of our sexual expression is that it only habituates our behavior around these things. And what we have to understand from a psychological perspective, and look, I, I don't have a degree in psychology, but you could Google search this. Shame is a great driver of creating addictive behavior. Shame and addiction mm. are oh, yeah. inter they're intertwined. They're, these are yep. not separate entities. So for example, you know, if I take it back to my drinking, I would drink because I was ashamed of myself. But I would only drink when I was ashamed of myself. And you see how it just <laughs> goes round and round and yep. round and round. Yep. So yep. the the shame gets you on that on that cycle of so we go from these highs to lows where we're incredibly aroused and then we have this thing like pornography and it's so stimulating and euphoric and then we crash really, really fucking hard. Yep into that shame that shame spiral and that imbues kind of our future and next time over behavior where it's like why well, feel like shit what's better at making me feel like shit than pornography or weed or well i don't know how many people say about weed but alcohol <laughs> or name whatever drug yeah. and they don't make yeah. that connection that the shittiness that you feel is not necessarily in the moment. It comes after. And you don't do exactly. actually you don't actually exactly. do these things for the mo that in the moment feeling. You actually do it for that after feeling. So some people get high because they think I like getting high. They're actually doing it because they want to feel like shit about themselves. Well, I don't think well, it's not about because desire. they want to feel like shit about themselves, but that is the that's that's the kickoff point. That, I that think that's same what pulls focus, fact. Javier. I think that's mm. what pulls focus. Yes. Um. Again, it's the lens of pathology versus the lens of pleasure or possibility. You know, we are more addicted to the shame cycle than we are habituated to feel nourished and satiated by the pleasure moment, the moment of pleasure. Yes. And I, I, I mean, that, that's a huge philosophical and theoretical point. But I want I want to make it because I think we're really habituated to the shame cycle. We're habituated to the compulsion and the struggle and the come down and the, you know, that's what we're used to. And man, we're so encouraged and supported in judging ourselves and shaming ourselves. Not so much in being like, oh, you're a human animal with a body designed for pleasure. Of course you want to fuck mm -hmm. or have an orgasm. Or be sexually stimulated in whatever ways. Like, that's normal. <laughs> and I think what's interesting, so the the objection to what we're talking about is pleasure is something that is normal. 
from, I think, a religious perspective is sinful and hedonistic. And they're... Base and vulgar. You're right. And their their prescription for fixing that is abstinence. Um, Denial. We also know that hardcore abstinence, and look, I don't have any studies on this, and I'm not saying there's causation. Maybe there is. Maybe I should look this up before I say this. But when you look at examples of rampant pedophilia and some of the people that are caught up within that they're sexually stunted people who were susceptible to uh very toxic views of abstinence and when i mean abstinence i don't just mean not having sex but literally like any type of sexual urge zero masturbation um not even like the slightest uh, exposure to media that shows like a woman's ankles. I mean, really, uh, how do I even put this? Just here, I got yeah. When you when you suppress natural urges, you know, as primal as the sexual urge, it is going to come out sideways. Mm-hmm. And abstinence and repress repression prove time and time again to create these outcomes. I don't even want to touch pedophilia right now, except maybe in like priests, you know, which is such a clear sideways, but I mean, Oh, that was my, yeah, that was my, that's what you were thinking of. Yeah. 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 I mean, but even like a more, um, I don't know, for me in this moment, more palatable thing to explore is like how many anti-gay Republicans were outed eventually as, you know, picking up male prostitutes, you know, or yeah, I mean, the, the, the loudest about whatever sexual practices are the ones doing it in secret, silence and shame and all of this stuff. So yes, I mean, I think repression, it doesn't, stop us not from not from having sexual desire and it doesn't stop us from wanting to do drugs like abstinence only that kind of pressure just creates a powder keg right whatever topic we're we're looking at you know um it's like you know if we don't talk well i mean it's like what's going on right now too if we don't talk about sex and we don't talk about gay people don't say gay then nobody will have sex and nobody will be gay, gay. <laughs> which is so fucking absurd. Proven yeah. time and time again to not be effective. Mm. No, I, I, I think that's a much better word. Instead of, it's about the repression because I'm not making a correlative or causal link between being celibate or abstaining and pedophilia. Um, but sexual repression like to your point, will lead people sideways. Exactly. Um, And that's so much part of our culture. Now, it it certainly in waves like that level of repression, we all experience some type of sexual repression where we're supposed to uh, deny these certain feelings or urges. For some people, it, it it's highly repressive in that they have to remain celibate. They have to abstain from any type of masturbation or pornography or all of these things and then maybe for somebody like me it's like yeah you shouldn't be looking at porn you know yeah tisk tisk right 
Um, so it, it, it depends on the degrees and levels, but I think that's a good way of putting it. Sexual repression will lead to this sideways expression of yeah. your sex. sex it's interesting uh, too, because this kind of comes back to like, again, like uh, the difference in our, you know, our regions and where and how we were raised. Um, you know, because that, that, like, I'm aware of that religious perspective, you know, abstinence only stuff, but that, that's it. I'm aware of it. Like that wasn't my, you know, my struggles have been more around, I don't know, much more nuanced things like monogamy, Yeah, <laughs> you know, that I should be monogamous. But it also sounds like you were maybe comparatively speaking, at least with me overexposed in some ways. I mean, we talked about, Oh yeah, I was. In, in I was past episodes. Of, yeah. Yeah. But I also like, you know, I also see that I was really privileged in some ways too, because especially as someone in a female body, socialized female identifies as female, um, you know, I, I didn't, I felt very entitled to sex, sexual exploration. Um, I liked sex. I had sex and, you know, it's only been, yeah, I don't know. I'm my, my I just went in a million directions. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're speaking to something that's unique about your experience. And, and that's always something that I've always enjoyed about being your friend and why I kind of view you as a unicorn, because it's not that I don't have female friends or don't know um, people that have had promiscuous backgrounds with sex, but it maybe this is with the perspective of its time has gone on for you. It's not imbued with like the same like level of shame and there's no, yeah. you're, you're not like, Oh, I used to be a slut. You know, and I think that's like a, the way that a lot of people, and more specifically women, because men don't call themselves sluts for some reason. Um, <laughs> for some reason, hmm. yeah, for some reason, yeah. Um, but but you know what I mean? Because like I, I have plenty of, of of friends who they won't own that entitlement. They'll own mm, the fact yeah. that they were promiscuous, but that entitlement. They so this is what they do. So. I think entitlement as sex is a is a socially driven perspective that's given to males. Absolutely. And for women, the, the inverse of that is you're a slut. That's how they're supposed to be, look at their entitlement around sex. Only if you're a slut, you you only think you're entitled to this thing, you know, if you're too easy. Um, yes. And you know, that's a whole other conversation oh, man. with gender. And, yeah, you know, it's like. It's funny because the gender thing, you know, we've, we've, we've touched on it a few times and. Can't escape it. I know. I refuse to acknowledge it. <laughs> like I, it makes me so mad that we have this binary. Mm -hmm. It is not my experience. It is not how I feel. And yet at the same time, I know it's real. Like people are experiencing it. Each time we talk about this, I think about it for days afterward. and. You know, just uh, there's a couple things I there's a couple things I want to touch on here, which is one is you know I've had um I've had close relationships and sex with men cis men cis women 
uh, my longest relationship was with a trans man who, when we met, it was pre, like, we didn't really know that that was a possibility. So when we met, he was a very masculine centered butch woman. So I've, I've had relationships and sex that are, that is straight and queer and casual and committed. And I've had a lot of sex and <laughs> I, I don't always have a lot of sex, but I have had a, I've a, I have a, I've done a lot of research <laughs> and um, one of the most interesting and horrifying connections I made in the last few years with was this young man who was sort of on the incel side of things. And it was the first time I really met anyone who thought like that. And I was, I was kind of like, oh my God, I got to understand what this is about. And eventually I was like, I can't, I can't even get close to this anymore. But the last conversation we had, he tried to corner me in this thing of like, you wouldn't answer my question when I asked you your body count. So, you know, that must mean that, you know, being a slut is bad. <laughs> and I thought about that for a long time afterward. And first of all, I was like, well, it's a private thing. Like I don't have to answer it and it doesn't mean anything about it, but it got me thinking about this whole slut thing, the slut shaming, the definition of being a slut. And again, the shaming and commodifying and defensiveness around all of this stuff and I realized that to like sex and to have sex in, from an entitled place as a woman puts you at risk of being slut shamed, right? Mm -hmm. And so then there's a lot of backlash against that of being slut proud. You know, then it's like, well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own that and I'm going to claim that. And I've never identified as a slut. I have played with that identity with a couple of partners and that has been fun. That mm -hmm. can be fun, but I don't identify as a slut. Like I don't want to be shamed for how I have sex. And I also don't want to be celebrated for how I have sex. Leave me alone and let me have it the way I want to have it. Yeah. No, well, well said. Um, and I think it's, I think when people get to hear why, why gender is not on your radar, makes total sense yeah. but it's the it is so inescapable and i find myself experiencing it on, on a day-to-day -day basis where i i'm in the same boat as you are in that it's it, it is a construction the way that we're told to express these things and we're given two different two expressions male and female and it's incredibly annoying and i i find in conversations with students or coworkers or family members in any time a, a a sentence gets started and ended with as a man <laughs> or as a woman when they when it starts and ends with that and it's like well it doesn't have to be like that you know yeah. i could be talking with a friend about their spouse and it's like you know I, I get you're trying to make a generalization about the female population or, or you could just ask your wife who's the person you're married to. And it doesn't have to be this. Uh, oh this... man. I, I really don't like generalizations. Like we've, I think I said this in a past mm -hmm. episode, but like talking about people in these large defined groups is so inaccurate, you know, like, mm -hmm. and it even like sometimes when we get big, I want to bring it back to us because mm -hmm. that gets real. 
But I do want to say, like, when I work with people, like, I have a skill set that I have developed and honed over the years. And I really pride myself in being able to meet people where they're at. Like, all of this noise kind of goes to the outside and I'm just here with you. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to meet you. I'm going to be right here with you and we're going to see where we go. But in more general conversations like we have, I have to say, like, I really don't understand the straight construct, the straight perspective. Like, I re I have to accept that men who think of themselves as men who, who think of men as men have a perspective. Like, and an experience. But sometimes I just feel really confused by it really <laughs> yeah oh, hold on though because <laughs> that's hard for me to believe because when you say understand do you mean that literally or do you mean understand in the sense of like why like why do you think that way because <laughs> i think you understand or i think you can conceptually okay. understand okay fair yes yeah yes yeah but you know like i mean i guess yeah understand isn't the right word maybe you can help me out like I get what you mean, though. I understand the sentiment of like... The same person that I was talking about said, like, he truly believes that men and women cannot be friends. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. You know, and I know, I know that's out there and people say it. And there's a, like, it <laughs> irritates me to the point of being dismissive. Like, I just, it hurts my brain to think about it. <laughs> For, for those listening, Elena's about to have an aneurysm right now. Uh, <laughs> she's she's counting to ten, and she's she's doing her namaste breathing, deep, deep breathing, <laughs> deep breaths, deep breaths. Yeah. Okay. But I, let's get let's get. I don't know. Let, let's wanna, switch gears. So bring you, it home a little bit. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's calm down and count to ten. Um, yeah. Thanks. Well, how, how do I mean? Again, like w when we talk about sex, there there are just inescapable side conversations, like the conversation of of gender yes, or of right. societal right. impact, um, because we're not isolated from this, and and that's what makes kind of like the, the the conversation about sexuality or what is sexuality, what does it mean to be sexual, so interesting because what about any of this is actually inherent? You know, yeah. it's, it's like, I, I tend to look at our sexuality like this, this piece of clay. And for some people, it, it gets nourished with more water so they can mold it over time. Mm. And then other people, they, they have that ball of clay and Brittle their parents and, and society yeah. or a pastor is fucking Rigid. blow drying it till it's hard and immovable. So it's, it's kind of, where do we start and where do we end? And I think from a societal perspective, and certainly not one that I agree with, but I can understand to a degree, it's like we want to have that clay be hardened sometimes. It's overwhelming if it's falling out of your fingers and it's putty and because it's where do you put yourself into? And as humans, well, we want to put ourselves in a box. It's also overwhelming though, because like so many, you know, as another theme that we keep touching on, is because we don't have real, good, contained, honest conversations and education about it, right? We we want to go rigid with something that we don't have a lot of information or support around. And that, you know, again, like imagine having support around being like, what, what feels good to you? What do you mm -hmm. want to try? What do you learn from what you've tried? 
Do you want to keep going in that direction? Do you want to switch directions? Do you want to try having sex with men? Do you want to try having sex with women? Do you want to not have sex at all? I mean, and those are just like super simple questions that mm-hmm. don't match the nuance of the the, ne- the conversations that are actually necessary. I do want to say something about, um, you know, one of the things that I think is a very masculine socialization that I see being harmful a lot is the focus on um performance like i think i think men are disconnected from their the pleasure of their bodies because they are so taught and conditioned and expected to perform and then and again straight cis heteronormative model we're talking here right Mm -hmm. men are there's an incredible amount of of pressure on performance and then in that same framework, women play into it too. Like it's, it's fed on both sides. And that is a, that's something I'd really, well, it is changing. I also have a whole, like, I love seeing how sex kind of across the board has gotten queered in the last couple of decades. You know, I think I think queer sex and queer people becoming more mainstream has had a great influence on straight people having sex also, just as an aside. To your point about performance with the male experience, I mean, that is one of the huge drivers, fear drivers with sex, at least early on, because that's more or less how it is viewed because sex is not this collaborative thing that we do with with each other it's it's kind of taught as this give and take situation it's something that men are supposed to get from women and women are supposed to protect from men yeah 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 Yeah. when really you know yeah getting back to like what's the point like the point i don't know i think for me the point of sex is pleasure self-expression I learn a lot about myself through my through having sex and having sexual relationships Um, I think it's a really creative exploratory thing in my life and for the most part I've gotten to interact with it in that way which I'm grateful for Hey, Pleasure Ethic listeners, Javi and Elena here. We just wanted to give you a quick thanks for listening to this episode. And if you have any questions about what we covered in this week's show or have topics you'd like us to cover in the future, don't hesitate to reach out. Elena, where can our listeners find us? To contact the show and learn more about my practice and other projects, visit thepleasureethic.com. 
You can also follow along on social media at Pleasure Ethic on Instagram and Elena Letourneau on Facebook. Lastly, if you've liked what you've heard thus far, please don't hesitate to follow and rate our show as we continue to grow our listenership across all platforms. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure, as always.